You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. represent those of the Congressional Research Service or the Library of Congress. So um, the history of the establishment of Soviet power in the years following the October Revolution can be described as a story of unanticipated difficulties and unintended consequences. And that's especially true if we're looking at a place like Central Asia, where the Bolsheviks encountered conditions that did not neatly fit into their ideological program. And that meant that they had to exhibit uh, a good deal of flexibility and creativity as they were establishing the Soviet Union in the territories of the former Russian Empire. As I'm sure all of you here know, um, the Soviet Union um, consisted of ethnically determined union republics, each of which had its own political structures. And today I'm going to talk about uh, some of the personal dimensions of the political structures of one of those republics, Kazakhstan, um, and what examining the process of elite formation can tell us about the Soviet Union more broadly. So when I was doing this research, uh, one of the major questions I was interested in was who became a Bolshevik and what types of people achieved political success in the first two decades of Soviet rule. In 1935, the Kazakh Soviet Republic was celebrating its 15th anniversary, and this is how one party official wrote about the early history of Kazakhstan's political apparatus. The Central Committee did not balk at the shortage of people and did not wait for them to fall out of the sky as fully formed and prepared and mature Marxists. Rather, it decisively and boldly enlisted and promoted to leadership positions those comrades who were on hand. This assessment of Kazakhstan's political elite is really revealing uh, in terms of the political dynamics of the early Soviet Union. The fact that the Bolsheviks essentially had to take who they could get uh, had far-reaching consequences for the political landscape of the USSR, uh, especially in an area like Central Asia. 
by enlisting those comrades who were on hand, Soviet authorities uh, essentially imported the legacy of imperial structures, including pre-existing social and political relationships, into the process of Soviet development. And we see that very clearly in the case of Kazakhstan. When the Bolsheviks began to establish control in the former territories of the Russian Empire after the October Revolution, they saw many obstacles um, to their political program in the conditions of the Kazakh steppe. Throughout the early years of Soviet rule, party officials, both in the Republic and in Moscow, constantly complained about uh, their work in this particular Republic as especially challenging. So at Kazakhstan's third party conference in 1923, one official um, talked about the fact that working in Kazakhstan is quote, notoriously difficult. Uh, seven years later, a 1930 report on the state of political, economic, and cultural development in Kazakhstan uh, laid out what it described as the exceptionally difficult and peculiar conditions that party authorities faced, um, including the republic's vast size, uh, the fact that it was very sparsely populated, the poor state of communications, uh, and quote, the extreme ignorance and backwardness of the population, which is still under the power of vestiges of feudal clan relations. And among all these many challenges, what was consistently singled out as one of Kazakhstan's greatest problems was what was described as, quote, the acute shortage of qualified party workers, especially from among the indigenous population, meaning from among the Kazakhs. These problems reflect the broader challenges that the Bolsheviks confronted as they sought to establish a Marxist state in the territories of Tsarist Russia. The Russian Empire was a sprawling multi-ethnic state that had undergone limited industrialization and whose population remained predominantly agricultural. This meant that the Russian Empire, um, as it was in 1917, did not seem like the likely location for a socialist revolution. So when the Bolsheviks seized power in October 1917, um, they didn't have a clearly formulated policy for approaching the national question and they were forced to address the problems of uh, translating Marxism to Russian conditions, both in their ideology and in their policies. Uh, and this was especially true when it came to the multi-ethnic nature of the Russian state. Uh, the Bolsheviks understood nationalism uh, to be a threat to the Marxist political program because it represented an alternative mobilizing force to class. So if you identified with your nationality, it meant that you could identify with people kind of across um, class lines, and that was an obstacle to class consciousness. Uh, with the promulgation of Soviet nationalities policy, the Bolshevik state uh, sought to meet all the demands of nationalism in order to diffuse them. So basically their approach was that uh, national identity was something you had to get out of your system uh, in order to achieve class consciousness class consciousness. Uh, and this meant that even um, those groups that had not existed as developed nationalities in the Soviet sense uh, would be granted specifically delimited territories within a Soviet Union organized along ethnic lines, uh, which would provide them with educational and cultural opportunities in their native languages. So whereas the Russian Empire had needed skilled intermediaries 
who could serve the imperial administration, the Bolshevik political program required the active participation of representatives of local nationalities as political actors. So it was very important for them um, in Kazakhstan and elsewhere to recruit members um, of the local population. And this is how uh, one uh, party official who was sent to Kazakhstan from Moscow uh, in the early 1920s um, described that challenge. It was clear that without local party workers familiar with the Kazakh way of life and the Kazakh language, we would be unable to develop our work in any way. We would be unable to penetrate not only the broad masses, but also the relatively narrow and to us highly important milieu of the Kazakh proletariat. Kazakh demographic realities um, in the early 1920s meant that the Bolsheviks had a limited pool of qualified people uh, whom they could draw on as potential recruits. And this was especially true when it came to the party's upper ranks. In this period, uh, the Kazakhs were largely nomadic, uh, and in fact, they remained so uh, until the early 1930s. At the time of the revolution, only about 2% of Kazakhs were literate in Russian. One incomplete estimate posits that uh, as of 1917, only about 700 Kazakhs had completed secondary school, uh, and only about 100 had a university degree. These demographic realities meant that um, as the Bolsheviks sought to establish power in the Kazakh steppe, they had to rely on those potential partners who were available to them. Uh, qualified Kazakhs in this period were essentially a very rare commodity. Uh, so who were those comrades who were on hand? Uh, in order to come up with a typology of early Soviet Kazakhstan's political elite, um, I looked at membership in the party bureau, which was the party's chief executive body in the republic. And the name of this body changed several times, but for the sake of consistency, uh, I just refer to it as the party bureau. And membership uh, fluctuated from a low of five members and two candidates to 21 members and seven candidates. And it changed relatively frequently. Uh, the ethnic breakdown of bureau membership uh, varied over time, but in general, Kazakhs accounted for 50% or more um, of the party bureau for most of the period between 1920 and 1937. Uh, so I identified 44 ethnic Kazakhs who served as part of the bureau in that period. Um, and these dates are important because 1920 is when uh, Kazakhstan's party structures were officially established, and 1937 um, is when many of these political actors uh, were arrested and ultimately executed um, as part of the Great Terror. So in addition to these 44 people, uh, there were a couple of other individuals um, who were or might have been uh, Kazakh, um, but I did not have sufficient biographical information to determine their ethnicity even in some cases uh, or to incorporate them uh, into the analysis. Uh, but in most cases, those are people who um, were part of the Bureau for very short periods, which is uh, also probably part of the reason why there isn't a lot of information on them. Looking at the biographical profile of uh, this group of 44, uh, we see some uh, broad patterns. And I'm going to talk about four important and closely interrelated factors. 
um, age, geography, education, and integration. Um, so the Kazakhs who entered this subset of the political elite were predominantly uh, quite young, especially if you think about the fact that they were in very senior political positions. The oldest was born in 1882, and the youngest was born in 1906. Uh, their average age at the time of the revolution was 21. The relative youth of these 44 party officials is reflected in the fact that 20% of them, more or less, were still students in 1917. Um, for those of who had already started working before the revolution, uh, the single largest group, about a third, were teachers. The Kazakh members of the Bureau were also young in terms of party tenure. So overall, um, their average party membership dated from 1920. And this is in stark contrast to their non-Kazakh colleagues, uh, many of whom had extensive pre-revolutionary experience uh, in the party, although that was almost uh, invariably outside of Kazakhstan. And although a handful of early Kazakh Bolsheviks had experience with um, politically oriented youth groups before the Bolshevik seizure of power, their political mobilization uh, was in most cases a direct result of the revolution. As the historian Adib Halid has noted, in Central Asia, it was the revolution that created the Communist Party and not the other way around. Educated in the years before 1917, those Kazakhs who made it into the political elite were in a position to join the party and advance up its ranks in the first years of Soviet rule of Kaz in Kazakhstan. At the same time, um, their youth gave them an advantage in that it meant that their pre-revolutionary political histories were limited. In the years following the 1905 revolution, the dominant political force among educated Kazakhs uh, was the grouping that would become the Nationalist Party Alash. Alash uh, resisted Bolshevik authority until it was militarily defeated in 1919, at which point its members were amnestied. Um, and in the early years of Bolshevik rule, there was a great deal of cooperation uh, between the party and the pre-revolutionary intelligentsia, uh, especially in areas related to cultural policy. But Soviet authorities remained very suspicious of the older generation of Kazakh intellectuals. Uh, most of this older generation were removed from positions of authority by 1930, uh, when the Soviet state carried out a wave of uh, anti-nationalist repression in Kazakhstan. Um, the younger generation was, uh, in a sense, in an advantaged position uh, because they were too young to have a pre-revolutionary political history that could get them in trouble uh, in the 20s. Um, but unfortunately, uh, m the vast majority of them ultimately met a similar fate. Uh, so the same cohort of Kazakhs remained politically dominant uh, in the first two decades of Soviet rule. Um, but their lives were almost invariably cut short. Of the 44 people uh, I examined, only seven survived past 1938, uh, including the only two women who served as members of the Bureau. Uh, another significant factor um, is geography. Uh, a, a large majority of Kazakh Bureau members were from the northern regions of Russia's empire, of the Russian empire's uh, Kazakh inhabited territories. And these areas had been incorporated into Russia earlier, 
than uh, more southern regions, and they had a more significant ethnic Russian presence. Um, so here you see some of the statistics. Um, uh, by Oblast um, from 1897 and 1914. So you see that there's generally uh, a pretty significant increase um, and that there are, as a rule, um, many more Russians in the, the north of what's now Kazakhstan uh, as opposed to the south, which is um, the last two uh, places, Sirdarda and Sivideche. And this is... Um, more or less the same picture, but from the other side, showing um, the population, uh, the, the Kazakh percentage uh, of the population. Um, so as we see, there's a, a really big change in the early years of the 20th century, and that was a result primarily of peasant migration uh, into Kazakh territories. And that's a phenomenon that had begun already in the 18th century, but it accelerated significantly after the abolition of serfdom in 1861, and especially during the implementation of Stalipin's uh, agrarian reforms from 1906 to 1917. Peasant settlement was especially concentrated in the northern part of what is today Kazakhstan. This influx of Slavic settlers uh, who were primarily interested in uh, arable land was economically and socially disruptive, and it had a deep impact on Kazakh livelihoods. The turn of the 20th century saw an accelerating rate of sedentarization among the Kazakhs, uh, especially in areas with greater concentrations of Russian settlers. Uh, in Omsk, Kustanay, and Aktyubinsk, which were all in uh, what's now northern Kazakhstan, nearly all Kazakh households had become sedentary by 1906. And this brought significant economic and lifestyle changes. According to one estimate, 59% of grain harvested in Uralsk Oblast, again, in, um, in what's now northwestern Kazakhstan, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, was grown by Kazakhs, um, who had previously been uh, nomadic pastoralists. Uh, education was easily one of the most crucial factors in shaping Kazakhstan's early Soviet elite uh, which makes sense if you think about it, because at, at a basic level, uh, those Kazakhs who uh, advanced into the upper echelons of the Communist Party were able to do so because they were literate in Russian at the time of the revolution. This meant that they were part of a very small educated minority. In 1914, uh, there were 2,011 schools of all levels within the boundaries of present-day Kazakhstan. They served a total of 105,200 students, of whom only 4,300 attended secondary schools. Kazakhs accounted for only 7.5% of total enrollment. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, the vast majority of the inhabitants of the Russian Empire were illiterate. Uh, the overall uh, literacy rate in the Russian Empire was 27%, according to the 1897 census. In Central Asia, it stood at 6%, 10% uh, for, uh, for men, and 3% uh, for women. And that takes into account members of all ethnic groups. Uh, for Kazakhs, literacy rates were even lower. All 44 Kazakh bureau members attended at least some form of primary school. 16 had some form of secondary education, ranging from gymnasiums to pedagogical courses. 
Um, it's interesting to note that uh, none of them had completed university education uh, at the time of the revolution, although some of them went on to study um, at various institutes and universities in the Soviet period. As I mentioned earlier, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, it's estimated that only about 100 Kazakhs had completed tertiary education, uh, and about 700 had completed some form of secondary education at various gymnasiums, uh, secondary schools, teachers, seminaries, institutions like that. Uh, so while the members of Kazakhstan's early party elite were significantly more educated than the vast majority of the Kazakh population, they were not its most educated subset. Uh, and this represents an important difference between the pre-revolutionary Kazakh intelligentsia and uh, the new Soviet elite. Um, many members of the pre-revolutionary Kazakh intelligentsia um, had studied at universities uh, in St. Petersburg, in other parts of the Russian Empire, uh, and in some cases abroad um, as well. Uh, to some extent, this, this difference may be a question of age. Uh, so the, the people who became the Soviet elite in Kazakhstan um, uh, were in many cases too young uh, at the time of the revolution uh, to have gone to university. Uh, and another potential factor is um, their social background. Uh, the question of social origin is a very complicated one to address using um, Soviet materials uh, from the 1920s. Um, but it does appear uh, that there was a difference between the two groups in terms of background. So many of the pre-revolutionary uh, intellectuals were disproportionately from traditionally privileged groups. Um, they were uh, Tudes, who claimed descent from Genghis Khan, or Kojas, who claimed descent from the first four caliphs, or members of other uh, otherwise influential families. Um, and to a large extent, it, it appears that the people who became the first Soviet uh, elite in Kazakhstan did come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. But what's important uh, to note is that their early years coincided uh, with a period during which educational opportunities were expanding and Russian language schooling, uh, though still limited, was becoming much more widespread uh, in the Kazakh steppe. Beginning in the mid-19th century, uh, the Tsarist government opened a series of schools intended to serve the local populations of Central Asia. And these were known as uh, Russian native schools. They were meant to create a stratum of educated, literate locals who could serve in the imperial administration, uh, and more broadly, to further the Tsarist state's perceived civilizing mission in Central Asia, and to promote Russification. So th there's a great deal of irony uh, in the fact that uh, they ended up training uh, Bolshevik cadres. Um, the question of education is closely connected uh, to another factor um, namely the, the social, cultural integration of these people um, into uh, Russian communities. Um, and that's very closely connected to the nature of the Russian presence in Kazakh ter territories uh, and the, the perceived civilizing mission of the Tsarist state. Settlement and education were very closely connected as part of Imperial Russia's vision for the economic and social development of the region. And they were both important factors um, 
in the formation of uh, the uh, early Bolshevik elite in Kazakhstan. Uh, the first Kazakh Bolsheviks were people who had pre-revolutionary social and cultural contact with the steppe's Russian population. They were already uh, linguistically Russifying and assimilating into imperial structures in the years before 1917. This experience was hardly typical of the vast majority of the Kazakh population, but it was an important determining factor um, in kind of uh, establishing the political landscape of uh, Kazakhstan in the first two decades of Soviet rule. And we often think of uh, the Imperial Russian presence in Central Asia in terms of uh, violent episodes like um, conquest or the very deadly uh, 1916 uprising. But despite the existence of inter-ethnic tensions that sometimes erupted into violence, colonial society in Tsarist Central Asia was not neatly segregated into Europeans and natives. There were tensions uh, among various strata of the local Russian population on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, uh, relations between Russian settlers and local populations were not universally hostile. Uh, in fact, there's uh, a great deal of evidence of uh, various types of cultural and economic integration, especially between settlers and traditionally nomadic groups uh, like the Kazakhs, uh, as opposed to traditionally settled populations um, in the more southern parts of Central Asia. When we look at the first generation of Kazakh Bolsheviks, we see that um, social, cultural, and economic contact with Russians was central to their education and to their professional trajectories more broadly. Uh, so I'm going to uh, look at uh, three individual histories um, to kind of illustrate the extent to which these questions, education, contact with Russians, and political mobilization were very closely intertwined for the first generation of the Kazakh Soviet elite. Uh, and the first person I'm going to talk about is Ayyubi um, Jangyudin. He was uh, literally the first Kazakh Bolshevik. Uh, he was the only one who joined the party before 1917. Um, he joined the party in Petrograd in 1915. Um, and he was uh, originally from Turgai, which is today in kind of um, central northern Kazakhstan. Um, Education was very important to determining uh, his path in life, uh, which he illustrates very colorfully in a memoir that he dictated in 1947. Uh, in his memoir, he talks about how he ran away from home in order to go to school. Um, apparently, what inspired him was uh, meeting a teacher and being very impressed by the teacher's uniform, especially its gold buttons. Um, that he ran away from home uh, to go to school and uh, converted to orthodoxy, which is highly unusual. Uh, it was not unheard of for Kazakhs to convert to orthodoxy uh, in the pre-revolutionary period, but it was very, very rare. Um, but he converted to Russian orthodoxy uh, and was baptized um, Nikolai Vladimirovich Stepnov. And his patronymic um, came from his godfather, who was the local bishop, uh, who served as uh, kind of his patron uh, in his early years. 
so he converted to orthodoxy, he assumed uh, a Russian name, and uh, through the patronage of, uh, of the bishop, he was installed in uh, the household of uh, the Orenburg Trogai governor as uh, a sort of companion for the governor's son. From there, he went on to study at the teacher's seminary in Kazan, um, and he was expelled uh, in 1905. He claims because of his revolutionary activity, um, but it's unclear. Uh, the uh, Kazakhstani Institute of Party History um, actually sent people to uh, the archives in Kazan uh, after uh, Jangildin's death uh, in the 50s, and they tried to figure out you know, what, he, what he'd been doing as a student there, and they couldn't find any trace of him uh, in the Kazan archives. Um, but after he was uh, supposedly expelled, uh, from uh, the teacher's seminary in Kazan for his revolutionary activity. He ended up in Moscow, actually through his connections in the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, he studied uh, in the history department of the Moscow Theological Academy. He was again expelled, uh, he claims, because of his militant atheism, um, but we have to take his word for it because uh, there aren't any kind of corroborating documents. Um, and after his expulsion uh, from the Theological Academy in Moscow, um, he embarked on uh, a round-the-world trip, and he went uh, by foot from Moscow to Petersburg, um, through the Russian Empire, uh, through Poland, through Austria-Hungary, and then um, into Egypt, across the Middle East, um, through India, uh, in China, uh, and then by boat to Japan, and then uh, returned to the Russian Empire uh, in 1912. Uh, and it seems like a very improbable journey, um, but it is actually very thoroughly documented uh, in a book he kept um, throughout his travels uh, that had stamps from primarily Russian consulates, but not exclusively Russian consulates. Uh, there are a couple of American consulates um, throughout his travels. Um, this is a, a photo of him uh, from when he was traveling. Um, and he claims that it was actually um, his travels outside of the Russian Empire um, that mobilized him politically. So in this sense, he's an exception um, because uh, he, he claims that he, he was uh, traveling through Europe and the Middle East and he saw that you know, the, the plight of the workers is everywhere the same. Uh, and that's what kind of um, inspired him to turn to communism. Um, he returned to the Russian Empire uh, before the revolution, um, joined the party in Petrograd in 1915, and was uh, a very important player uh, in the civil war in Kazakhstan, um, largely because he was uh, the only Kazakh who was a Bolshevik at the time of the revolution. Um, and he um, had an active party career. Um, throughout his life, um, he was kind of uh, displeased with the fact that he was not uh, accorded enough respect in his estimation, uh, befitting his status as the first Kazakh Bolshevik. Um, but he was uh, exceptional, uh, not only in the fact that he joined the party before the revolution, went on this very interesting trip around the world, um, but also in that he survived. Um, he was not killed in the terror. Uh, he actually outlived Stalin uh, by several months uh, and died in uh, 1953. Uh, so even though Jangidin is in many ways an exceptional figure, um, 
he does conform to many of the broad patterns of um, the early Soviet elite in Kazakhstan overall. Uh, the next person uh, I'd like to talk about is uh, Alma Urazbayeva. Um, she's considered the first female Kazakh Bolshevik. And she was born in uh, what's now Western Kazakhstan in 1899. Uh, she joined the party in 1919. Uh, so like uh, everyone other than Chiang Kai-shek after the revolution. Um, and after studying in Moscow, uh, she held a number of posts in Kazakhstan. Um, party structures in Kazakhstan were actually kind of fighting over her because she was the only Kazakh woman uh, and uh, they really wanted her to work for their organization. Um, but later she was sent to work for the Comintern in Mongolia. She left political life in 1929 uh, due to what was apparently a debilitating mental illness. Some memoirists claim uh, that she was driven insane after her husband, who was an ethnic Russian, uh, cheated on her with her sister. Um, other people point to the fact that her father um, uh, was an alcoholic uh, as the root cause of her affliction. Uh, after being treated at the Kremlin Hospital in Moscow, uh, Urazbaeva was sent to live with relatives in Kazakhstan, um, and she died, unfortunately, largely forgotten uh, in 1943. Uh, however, we have uh, a wealth of uh, really evocative material about her because in the late 1950s, uh, a number of her classmates um, from her school days uh, decided that uh, she should be commemorated and that uh, the party was not doing enough uh, to commemorate her, so they gathered a lot of material um, on her life. Um, so she uh, apparently grew up in a poor family, a difficult family situation, um, connected largely to uh, her father's alcohol abuse, but she was able to attend school um, largely thanks to community support. Um, and uh, throughout her schooling, um, she developed uh, really deep friendships, I think as attested to the fact that decades later, her former classmates um, went through so much effort to commemorate her. Uh, and her uh, school friends um, were uh, a diverse group that included um, both Kazakhs and Russians, both boys and girls. Um, her classmate, uh, Madina Bekalieva, recalled uh, later, at that school, we studied together with Russian girls, and we became close friends with them. We went to some of their homes or studied together in school. Sometimes we organized literary evenings at home. We sang, we read poetry by Pushkin, Lermontov, Turgenev, and others. We especially liked Pushkin's The Prophet and The Village, and Lermontov's Branch of Palestine and Three Palms. Of all the girls, Alma was the best read and most developed. Uh, and this is how one of her Russian classmates described her. I followed her around as if under a spell. Alma was very well read and knew Russian well, which surprised me very much because I and all the other Russian pupils assumed that only we knew Russian well. Gradually, the idea took root in my mind that I should not only look up to Russians, but that Kazakh girls were also good, knowledgeable, and intelligent, and that I should take an example from them. So in 1916, uh, Alma graduated from a three years teacher's course in uh, Hanska Stavka, uh, the place she was from in Western Kazakhstan. And she was one of the first Kazakh women to work as a teacher in uh, Russian native schools. Uh, so we see again that education and contact with Russians uh, was very directly connected 
to um, her educational and professional trajectory. So those two people um, were from uh, what's now northern Kazakhstan, in that sense very typical of this group. But we see many of um, the same patterns at play uh, in the south as well. Um, this is uh, Oraz Jandosov, who was also born in 1899 uh, in Semirece, not far from uh, the city that is today, Almaty. Um, and his life trajectory was um, very deeply impacted by the fact that his father was um, friends with a local Cossack leader and with other local Russians. Uh, and this had a direct influence in the decision to send Oraz to school. Um, despite pretty adamant objections from his extended family. Um, and despite the opposition of some of his relatives, Jandosov spent 10 years as uh, a student in Vierny, which is now Almaty. And he lived in a dormitory with Kazakh and Russian students during the school year and would re return home during breaks. In 1912, he even traveled to the imperial capital as part of a delegation of students from Semirechen. His classmates remembered Jandosov as an able student and a talented artist who copied out paintings by Repin and uh, once sculpted a bust of Gogol out of snow. Uh, he also stood out in their memory for being enamored of a Russian uh, girl from the nearby girls' gymnasium, uh, socializing with her dances and uh, exchanging letters with her. In addition to letters and poetry, he sent her two illustrations of uh, Yarmatov's poem, The Demon, one entitled, entitled Tamara and the Demon, and the other called The Angel and Tamara, uh, as well as a watercolor landscape. Um, in 1915, uh, he sent a letter accompanying one of his drawings, which I will quote because I think it's very cute. Uh, um, you have made uh, such a good and pure impression on me that I tremble involuntarily before you, and wishing to bestow a gift on such a creature as you, I decided on this. Accept this insignificant gift from me, which, dare I think it, will please you. I will dedicate the product of my insignificant talent to you and will send you my pictures if you will permit it. My sole wish is to see you and to tremble before your image. Um, so this is uh, John Dosov, a student with um, his father, and this is um, him with his classmates. He's in the top left. Um, John Dosov graduated from the gymnasium uh, in 1918 with a silver medal, um, one of three students who uh, received that honor. And by that time, he was already active in local political circles. Uh, he contributed cartoons and caricatures to um, uh, a satirical journal uh, that circulated throughout Semirece. And it was through um, people he knew um, via the gymnasium that he became politically active uh, and ultimately became um, a Bolshevik. Um, another thing that I think is, is really interesting to note, uh, in addition to these kind of broad patterns um, of the uh, early Soviet elite in Kazakhstan, is the fact that this process of elite formation uh, had an enduring impact. Um, and this was one thing I found actually fairly surprising over the course of my research was um, this kind of continuity uh, throughout um, multiple generations. So as I mentioned um, earlier, almost all of these people were killed uh, in 1937, um, 1938. 
And um, that was a very difficult and tragic situation for their families um, because not only did they lose uh, their husbands and fathers, but they were also branded as um, families of uh, either children or wives of uh, enemies of the people. Uh, and that carried with it a lot of uh, stigma and also um, made their lives more difficult in very concrete ways. Uh, but despite that fact, uh, a lot of uh, the children, so the next generation, uh, went on to study um, at prestigious universities, um, not just in Kazakhstan, but also in Moscow. And when he, many of them went on to have uh, kind of successful, prestigious Soviet careers. Um, one became a famous uh, cinematographer. Um, they were you know, members of the Academy of Sciences and doctors, uh, professors, um, those types of professions. And um, because of that, because they were this part of this kind of um, Soviet cultural intelligentsia, broadly speaking, uh, in many cases that meant that their children um, were positioned to, to do fairly well um, after 1991. And their children, who are now you know, in their 20s and 30s, um, in many cases uh, have studied abroad, have gone back to Kazakhstan, and are people who are very um, culturally uh, and socially engaged. Um, so looking at the descendants of this first generation of positive Bolsheviks, we see people like um, the first um, uh, ambassador from independent Kazakhstan to China, um, the former head of the National Bank, uh, a lot of people who are engaged in business, a lot of um, social activists, um, people like that. Uh, and I think it, it's really interesting um, this contrast between the fact that the Soviet Union was uh, in many ways um, uh, destructive in Central Asia and uh, unquestionably uh, brought about very deep transformations. Um, on the other hand, we, we see this, this interesting continuity. Uh, so these three cases uh, illustrate some of the fundamental features of Kazakhstan's early Soviet elite. These were people who were literate uh, in Russian because they had attended primary school and they usually had some form of secondary schooling. Because they didn't come from wealthy families, they attended school thanks in part to material support or other assistance from their broader communities. They also had extensive contact with Russians and Russian culture uh, in the years before the revolution. Already before 1917, they were russifying and upwardly mobile. Examining the Bolshevik political elite at the republic level reveals clear patterns in the process of elite formation in the Soviet Union. In Kazakhstan, those local actors who joined the party and reached, reached its upper levels in the years between 1920 and 1937 were predominantly young and educated, but they were not the most educated members of Kazakh society. They were literate in Russian, but they did not have any university education. They tended to come from areas with a significant Russian settler presence and their educational and professional trajectories were shaped by cultural and social contact with Russians. On the whole, they came from less privileged backgrounds than the members of Kazakhstan's pre-revolutionary intelligentsia. Unlike Kazakh intellectuals who were active before 1917, as a general rule, the Kazakhs who comprised the Republic's future Bolshevik elite did not have significant political experience preceding the revolution. Uh, indeed, in most cases, it was the revolution that served as the primary factor in their political mobilization. 
but it was the nature of the Russian colonial presence in Kazakh territories that meant that they were in a position to be politically mobilized in the aftermath of 1917. And that means that the legacy of Russian colonialism uh, in Kazakhstan shaped the republic's revolutionary elite and also its political landscape into the 1930s uh, and indeed beyond. The Kazakhs who joined the party and advanced through its ranks in the early years of Soviet rule were self-conscious modernizers whose goals and views of progress were informed by their experience within the Russian Empire. The legacy of Russian colonialism in Kazakhstan therefore meant that empire and revolution were closely intertwined. Thank you. <laughs>